Would you pray with me? Lord, what a day that will be when we will gather around your throne and we will see your greatness. We will see you for who you are. God, we look forward to that day. We do look forward to that day. And God, thank you for your presence here this morning. Um, thank you that you that you meet with us here as we worship you. Lord, in a moment as we open your word, um, my mind goes to the, the passage in Jeremiah 23 where it says, Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rocks? And so, Lord, some of us have some hard places that need to be broken up, and we admit it. God, would you burn like a fire? Some of us may just be weary and, and, um, and need a fresh fire this morning. So, God, we are trusting you as we open your word to fulfill your promises, to keep your promises, to burn like a fire, and to break up hard places. And so we give ourselves to you as we open your word. Um, teach us, uh, change us, remove anything that needs to be removed all for the glory of your name. And we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for joining us here this morning. If you're new here, my name is Floyd, and um, I do the majority of the preaching and teaching. I don't always cry on stage, but sometimes I do. And uh, man, what an honor it is to be with you here this morning. And... Um, and to do the baby dedications, that's such a cool event of church life. I love that because it's always this acknowledgement of God is raising up another generation of men and women to follow him and to serve him. We are working our way through the book of Second Peter right now. We, we did First Peter and we are finishing up the first chapter of Second Peter this morning. We have looked at how Peter tells us that God, through his divine power, has given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. It talks about these qualities, and he says, if you'll keep these qualities, you're going to be successful. You will be able to walk with God in a, in a powerful way. And then we get to verse 12, which is where we were last Sunday. He talks about reminding, and we looked at the remembering and the reminding and how the truths of God are passed from one generation to the next in the remembering we remember the truths of God and then we remind the next generation and we pass on the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ but now we come to verse 16 and this is almost a preface of what he's going to say next in chapter 2 because he's about to warn them of false prophets. And I'm not going to go there right now. I'm not going to spend much time there because we're going to be there in the next couple of weeks talking about the warnings about false prophets. But what we're looking at the text this morning is almost a preface or a foundational truth that he establishes before he ever begins to talk about false prophets. And it is the power of God's word. So we've titled this series, Knowing or growing in knowing, because this theme keeps coming up through Second Peter, that you would know God, that you would experience God in a personal, relational way that you would actually know Him. And not just know Him, but that you would grow in that. And this morning, it specifically addresses growing in the knowing of God's Word. 
and the power of God's word in keeping us from error, in keeping us in, in our relationship with him, and in being the foundation for truth and establishing that for us so that we can walk in truth and in light. So Peter picks it up in verse 16, and I want to just read the text, but it's, a, it's just some powerful spots in there. And he is addressing the position or the place that God's word has in our hearts. Now, we heard a reference a little bit ago that you may or may not have grown up in church. And I talked about that last Sunday. I shared some of my own experience of growing up in a church. One of the things that I've discovered is that even if you grew up in a church, it doesn't automatically mean that you love the, God's word. In fact, it might mean that it's boring to you or that you don't like it at all. One of the things I've realized is oftentimes it's people who did not grow up in a church who have a better relationship with God's word than those who did because those who did almost get immunized to it. Like it's almost like, there's a, like they've built a shield around their heart to God's word being able to penetrate and confront them. And that's one of the dangers, is that it was a lifetime of hearing Scripture, hearing God's Word taught, would be that you or I would develop this hardness of heart, that the truth, the amazing truths of the Gospel, that Jesus Christ loves us, that He came, that He died for us, that those truths would somehow become commonplace, that our hearts would become hard to Him. And so Peter's reminding his readers of the power of God's word and what it really means to them. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along. I want to read the text this morning, and we're going to pick it up in verse 16. For some reason, my clicker does not seem to be working. Okay, verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have, I'm sorry, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I love that terminology that he ends with. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a neat picture where it's like the Spirit of God is literally carrying people, carrying men along as they wrote Scripture. So what Peter is pointing to here is the 
importance and the authority of Scripture. He talks about this message that they had given to them, this message that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one that they had been looking for, and this term Messiah is described when he says the Lord Jesus Christ, because Christ is literally the anointed one, the one that God had chosen before the foundation of time to come and to save people from their sins. If you're here this morning, we heard it this morning, and, I'm, and I will just re-emphasize, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, to forgive you of your sins, and to cleanse you, and to change you and make you a new person, this is your day that you can do that. And it's very simple. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. You admit that you're a sinner. And that you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you trust him to control and run your life from this day forward. This is the message that Peter and the other apostles had walked around taking from town to town, from person to person. This message of Jesus Christ as Messiah, that he has come in power. And he demonstrated that repeatedly, that he had come in power, and not only had he come in power, but he had come in authority. He had the rightful place as Lord of their lives. And Peter's saying, this is the message that we brought to you. Lord Jesus Christ has come in power and authority. And if you would be sitting there and you're listening to these apostles share this message or you're listening to these letters being read, which was more commonly the case, because these letters were being distributed throughout the known world. And they were being taken from one congregation of people to another congregation to another congregation. These writings of the apostles... And you could realistically sit there and say, okay, so we just read in 1 Peter, and he's, or this, this book, uh, the Second Peter, this last letter now that's being circulated through the churches, and we just read that there, that there are all these qualities that you're supposed to have, like add to your faith virtue and, and kindness and, and brotherly affection, all these things. And, and so I've got a few things I'd like to add to that list myself. Or maybe there's a couple there that bother me I'd like to take away from. And what about some of my letters? Maybe I should write some letters and circulate them through the churches. Man, I got some great ideas about how Christians ought to live. And those things were actually happening. And we're going to address them in the next chapter where it talks about there were false teachers. But it wasn't uncommon that in the circulating of these apostles' letters, which became the New Testament for us, that people would say, well, I've got some things to say. How do their words have any more authority than mine do? Why would we circulate the letters of Peter or Paul or these Gospels like Luke and Mark and Matthew? John. I mean, sure, he was the disciple that Jesus loved, but... That doesn't mean that his words have any more weight than mine do, do they? They actually do. And this is the question that Peter's addressing in the opening verses of this text. He's addressing this pushback that maybe what Peter is telling them isn't any more reliable than anybody else. And he establishes what we would call apostolic authority. He says, the, we saw him glorified. And he goes back to a moment when him and two other apostles were on the mountain with Jesus. 
And he says, we saw him glorified. We heard a voice from heaven. And if you would go back and you'd read those accounts in the, in the uh, Gospels, you would find God having said, so here's the story. Let me just tell the story in case you're not familiar with it. Jesus took several of his disciples up to the top of a mountain one day. And while they were up there, it says that he became glorified. In other words, he began to shine. And it says that Elijah and Moses joined them on the mountain. Now, I don't know about you, but if I went up to a mountain and Elijah and Moses showed up, I'd never forget it. Peter did the most Peter thing ever. He said, Lord, let's build tents and stay right here. This is an amazing place. I mean, Elijah and Moses are here. Representing the law and the prophets, by the way. And Jesus is talking with Elijah and Moses on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration because he was transfigured into glory. And and then there's a point where Peter says, well, let's build tents here. And then it says that a, that a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord covered the mountain. And it says that when the cloud lifted, Moses and Elijah were gone. And then they came down off the mountain. Before they came down off the mountain, there was a voice that they heard. And it was the voice of God. And he said, this is my son. Listen to him. And there was this, this establishment of the authority of Jesus Christ as a son of God to a people who up to that point would have seen the law and the prophets as being the most authoritative voice. And when they were on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and with Jesus hearing the voice from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him. They understood that something very dramatic was happening and that God had in fact given his son and he would reign as the rightful king in power and in authority forever and ever. And they also realized that they had seen it for a reason and that they were supposed to carry that message to the known world. And so this process happened in creating the New Testament, we call canonization. It happened in creating the Old Testament also. But it was this process of church leaders sort of at some point, about 100 years in, saying, what are the reliable letters and what are the, what's the standard that we would apply to a letter being written and taught in our churches? Because in the book of Acts, there's times when you read about how they would, they would get together and they would study the apostles' teachings. And that was essentially what we have as the New Testament. And there was a process called canonization that created this compilation of letters that we have that we know of as a canonization. Now there's always been this question, did the guys who wrote these know that they were writing the Bible while they were writing them? And I would contend that based on what Peter is saying in this place and what Paul said in a couple other places and what Peter says about Paul later in 2 Peter, that they were, had at least some level of awareness that they were, in fact, writing Scripture. They were writing Bible. And that it was authoritative. And that they were also being carried by the Holy Spirit. But what Peter is saying is he says, we have seen the glorified Christ 
And he's establishing the authority, not of himself, but of his message. And that's actually important. Because if you would look at the people who wrote scriptures, there's reasons to say, well, this guy had some problems, that guy had some problems. And if you would establish their authority based on how perfectly they lived as individuals, you would have right to question it. So what Peter is saying is not, this is that you should listen because of the authority of me. He's saying the authority of my message, and, it, and the message is confirmed by what we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he goes on. So, the apostles witness to this message that Jesus is the Messiah in authority and in power. And the best way I know to describe this is by drawing all these you know, boxes and arrows. So, if you don't like boxes and arrows, hang with me. I'll get away from them here in a little bit. But, he also points to the scriptures... In the Old Testament, and he's like, they also are witnessing to Jesus as the Messiah in power and in authority. So Peter's saying, believe my message. He's like, we have been given a unique responsibility to share this message, and the message has authority, and we do so based on the authority of the scriptures, and when he's talking about them, he's referring to what we know of as the Old Testament, because that's what they refer to. And he's saying, because he, he moves from this mountain of transfiguration scene, and he begins to talk about, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, so he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, says we have it more fully confirmed, and he and he says, you do well to pay attention. I'm going to come to that in a few moments. But he says, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. He's talking about guys like Moses and Daniel and Isaiah and men like that. He's like, they didn't make this stuff up. God told them what to write. And again, there was a process of canonization that by the time of Christ, that they had accepted what we know of as the Old Testament. And if you don't think so, do a study of the Gospels and how many times Jesus quoted from it. Constantly quoting from it. And then when the church is born, they're constantly quoting from the Scriptures. They taught the Scriptures. And they understood that they could not go around the world sharing the message of Jesus Christ without the Scriptures that they knew. And they carried those scriptures with them because they said this is the confirmation that he is exactly who he said he was. He is the Messiah, that he did come for us. And so Peter is saying the apostles witnessed to this message, the Old Testament scriptures witnessed to this message, and they witnessed to each other. Like they're, they're affirming each other. This isn't original with me, but I, I love this that if we read and study and teach the Old Testament without finding Christ, without seeing Jesus, then we are not actually New Testament Christians. And if we ignore the Old Testament 
we're not actually New Testament Christians. And the idea that there was a separate message in one from the other was foreign to them. That the central figure was not still Jesus Christ. Now, that idea sounded great the first time I heard it. But I got to be honest, I wrestled to believe it. Because I've read the Old Testament. And I didn't see it talking about Jesus a lot. And so I, I really was like, I don't know. Like maybe like super Christians can figure this out. I didn't really see myself as one of those. And wasn't just, I just wasn't sure if that was accurate or not. But then I come to a passage like this, where he's saying this is the message, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's come in power and authority, and we have witnessed to this. Oh yeah, and the scriptures you have have witnessed to this. And I read verses like John chapter 5, in, in John chapter 5, where the Pharisees are, are confronting Jesus, and Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have life, but he says, they speak of me. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures that they had. He says, they speak of me. It's like, I'm the central figure of those, those texts. What's he saying when he walks on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples? It says that he walked with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and, he, and it says that he expounded to them from the law and the prophets everything concerning himself. Like, well, if Jesus believed it, then we'd better go with it. And that seems to be what the argument that Peter is making here when he's simply saying that we witness to this and the scriptures witness to it and the scriptures are there because people were carried along by the Holy Spirit when they wrote them. And he's establishing that central message and that they witness to each other and they both witness to the same message the Bible is possibly confusing, and yet it's all going to one point, and it has one central message, and that is the message of Jesus Christ. Sometimes in discussing the Bible, it, it may or may not be helpful to you to look at it in sort of a timeline. There's... Um, I couldn't find a timeline that I liked because every timeline of the Bible has the gap between creation and Genesis 6, the flood, as a tiny little gap. You know why? Because it's only six chapters long. And it feels like a short amount of time. It's not a short amount of time. It's about 1,656 years. One-third, not quite, nearly one-third of human history happened by Genesis chapter 6. And then you read about the worldwide flood. After Genesis 6, from there to Matthew, is about another 2,300 years, and then you have patriarchs, exodus, promised land, judges, kings, prophets, exiled prophets, and you're like, so is this all written in a linear fashion? Kind of, but no. 
Like they're in sections. So the Bible is a compilation of books, right? So you read about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph. You read about them going down to Canaan, and you read about the, the delivery from slavery in Egypt. I said Canaan. They went to Egypt. They came out to Canaan, the promised land. And then you read about the period of judges, and then you read about the kings. And while the kings are, are in place, while those things are happening, so you read about in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, you read in, in the stories of narrative. And while those stories are happening, sort of overlaid are the prophetic books. And there are prophets that are alive the same time as the kings, but you think it's years and years later because you read through those and then you go to, you know, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and then all of a sudden you start reading Proverbs and you're like, well, what's the connection between the Proverbs and the kings? Well, they were actually alive at the same time in many cases. And then you read about the exile. If you were here when we went through the study of Daniel, we, we talked a lot about the exile. Daniel was alive during that time. And then you get to Matthew and then you have Matthew and Revelation and... Revelation, of course, is Revelation, of course, is the sort of pointing to the eternal kingdom that is to come. And then you have this church age, which we're living in today. There's about 2,022 years, if our calendar is accurate, and today. And the question is, so what? <laughs> like, what, what was the point of all of it? Well, I already said, it's Christ. It's Jesus. But how are you supposed to read through things like the stories of Abraham and David and those guys and to see Jesus there? And I'm not going to spend enough time here this morning because it would ruin your lunch and your dinner to unpack all of that. But it's one of the things that the older I get, the more committed I am to. And one of the reasons that if you continue attending here, you see us kind of, you're going to see us continuing to jump between Old and New Testaments, teaching Jesus from both. So in case you're wondering, after we get done in Second Peter, we're going to the Old Testament. And if you're wondering where we're going, just keep coming, we'll get there. It's important in the Old Testament as we work through it, and, and again, I want to keep moving through this for the sake of time, but Christ is patterned, he is promised, and he is present in the Old Testament. He is patterned in the stories, the, those narrative books, in the law, and in the poetry, the Psalms, and the Proverbs, the wisdom literature of the Proverbs. He is promised in the kings and the prophets. There's times when he is very explicitly promised, and he is present. There are times when you actually see God showing up at times in the Old Testament, and then also in his glory. He makes his glory known. And all of those are giant arrows that point to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In the New Testament, Christ is presented in the Gospels and, and in Acts, and he is purposed. And I know that's not great grammar, but it started with a P, and I needed to use it. And like the point of the Messiah, the point of the Gospel is explained in the epistles. Like we are told how to live. The point being that it honors Jesus Christ. And then he is promised in the apocalyptic literature of Revelations and in several other places, First, uh, Second Thessalonians. We're going to talk about it a little bit in Second Peter. There are some passages that, that point to the kingdom eternal coming. 
And I don't want to spend a ton of time on that, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of that to whet your appetite because what I would love to see happen from this morning is that you would come out of this morning with a greater hunger to dig in the scriptures and to get in the word and to not only just read it, but to see Jesus there, to see him patterned, to see him promised and to see him present, to see him, to see the purpose and the point. Because if you read it without Jesus Christ as a central figure, it's a confusing book at best. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why, why Abraham? Like why did God promise to Abraham that in him all of the nations of the world would be blessed? How is he doing that? Well, if you divorce Jesus from any of it, it gets confusing. But when he's the central figure and the fulfillment, as he said he is, of all the law and the prophets, when he's the fulfillment, you begin to say, ah, the picture is getting clearer. And I start to see the point. And that has been incredibly helpful to me. Now, I want to get to my sermon. There are two essential beliefs about the Bible, and I think you find them described here in this text and the belief the first one is that it is from God and not men and Peter is referring to this repeatedly verses 16 again in verses 20 and 21 when he says in verse 16 he says we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power listen we live in a day of cleverly devised myths do you know that the, the last number that I heard was 19 out of 20 Christian Facebook sites are fake. Like they're created for the purpose of selling advertising, not for the purpose of communicating truth. Like they're sending out all these little articles. You click on the article because the headline grabs you and you're like, whoa, is that really true? And so you click on it and you scroll through dozens of ads to get there. They don't care about the message. They care about selling advertising and getting you and I to click on it and look at all their ads. We live in a day of cleverly devised myths. And there is very little, even if it agrees with your politics, that you can absolutely trust in our day. We are inundated with this junk. And they know, because of their algorithms, by the way, how, where you lean politically and religiously. And they'll keep feeding you this stuff. And I. Because it shows up on my sites too. Now, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, to begin with, don't treat it as authoritative. Like, just because it kind of agrees it doesn't hold authority because it's not necessarily accurate because it comes from people and people are not accurate and don't hold absolute authority and so as Peter is writing to his readers and to us he's saying we didn't come with the message of Jesus Christ the glorious good news of the gospel with a bunch of cleverly clever designed myths 
We didn't put together a plan on how could we really make this tantalizing to people. So we just told you about Jesus. That he loves you. That he died for you. And then he invites you to follow him and to walk with him. Like, that's what we did. Very simple message. Paul talks about it in several places. He's like, it's just careful not to make it the power of persuasive words and just the simplicity of the message. I mean, I read this stuff. It confronts me as somebody who has this responsibility to get up Sunday after Sunday and share the gospel and share the word. I'm like, Lord, help me even in my boxes and arrows, not to use cleverly designed myths, but to keep the simplicity of the good news of Jesus Christ as central to everything. That's, that's the call on our lives. Because if I'm teaching Scripture, it has authority, and it is accurate. And if you reject this notion, then you can sort of um, deconstruct everything else that it means to be a Christian. In other words, if you start with, well, I, I have a Bible. There's a lot of good things in there, but I consider it like a mailbox. There's some good stuff in there, and there's junk mail in there. That's the way our mailboxes are. Listen, there are professors, this is not going to shock you, there are professors in, quote, Christian colleges who are teaching essentially that. That the Bible, we read it, it's got some good stuff, got some error, part of it's accurate, part of it's not. Like, maybe Jonah didn't really get swallowed by a whale. You know, maybe that's just allegorical for something else that happened to Jonah. Listen, if God would have wanted the whale to get swallowed by Jonah, he could have done it. <laughs> He's that big of a God. Do you understand what's happening as people deconstruct that? They, they're deconstructing a big God. Like the assault is not on the book. The assault is on the author of the book. The assault is on who our God is. Because if he didn't really heal, if he didn't really come down on the mountain with fire, then he's a small and a weak God if he even exists at all. But if you can take his word for what it says, that it is accurate, that it has authority, then it changes everything. And by the way, if it always agrees with you, you're reading it wrong. If Scripture never confronts you, I promise you, you're reading it wrong. It should bother us. Because it is the message of who we are, who He is, and our desperate need of Him. That, so that's the first essential truth. That it is from God and not from men. And as you pick up the Word and as you read it, hopefully regularly, you better start with that one. Because sooner or later you're going to find something you don't like. And your, into, your instinct is going to be, maybe, that's, maybe God didn't really mean that. Like the, the message 
that the serpent brought in the garden to Eve, remember what the serpent says? He came with a question, didn't he? He said, did God really say? He said, did God really say? And when you and I pick up this and we read it, it's pretty hard when we run into those places that bother us not to agree with that message of the, of the devil that says, did God really say? He did. And it has authority. The second essential truth is that the Bible lights our way to know our Savior. And you could word this in various ways. But it's, it is a personal letter. Um, I, I wrestle a little bit with that because I don't want to diminish the, the authority of it by calling it a personal letter. But I hope you understand what I mean by that. Versus a rule book or a history book. Here's why this is important. I would love, and I do love, one of the things that I have been amazed by, you guys, is that I have never gotten to be in church leadership with a group of people that were more hungry for the Word of God than I am right now. And I love that. Like, I love the fact that I get feedback constantly from you, from you men and women. I was trying to come up with a great word for you. <laughs> my friends, um, about things you're reading in the Bible. And that shouldn't be unusual for Christians. It actually is. And that's a sad reality. And so I love that. However, the Pharisees also studied the Bible and they rejected Jesus. The Pharisees read scripture, and they knew it, they taught it, and they still rejected Jesus. And God help us not to be people of a book as much as we are people of a savior. We don't actually follow the book, we follow the God of the book. And it receives its authority from its author. The Bible does not receive its authority from our creeds. In other words, if a group of people sit together and they say, we believe that the Bible has authority, that it is accurate, and that it, it is applicable for our lives every day, that doesn't give the Bible authority. God gives the Bible authority. It's accurate and it is authoritative because of its author, and because of its message, which is Jesus Christ. And if you and I pick it up and we simply read it as a rule book, that's one of the reasons we don't pick it up, by the way, is because we see it as a rule book and we're like, I don't like rules. Well, I'm not fond of them either. Or we see it as a history book and you're like, well, history's boring. I was bored to death with history in school. Well, I wasn't. I actually love history. The Bible's so much more. It's deeply personal. And it shows us it shows us to use its own words. It is a light to light our way. To use Peter's words. He says, pay attention. He's talking to Scripture as a lamp shining in a dark place. He says, pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. What's he talking about? He's saying, study the word and pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, do you have any dark places? I do. Do you run into times when you're confused about which way to go next? 
I am. Are there times when you're not sure how to relate to someone else? Someone you work with, someone you're married to, someone you're a parent to, or someone you're a child to. That happens constantly. Do you worry about how to handle your finances? Are there dark places with your finances? I have those. What are we supposed to do with those? Say, Lord, teach us, show us. We need to know how to do that. We need to know how to take care of this dark place. And then we open it up and start to read. We say, Lord, show me. Teach me from your word. Your word says it's a lamp lighting dark places. I'll just take that on its face value and say, I've got some dark places and I need some help. I have issues. God, help me with these. Here's what we tend to do. We hit the dark places and we either try and figure it out or if we're really spiritual, we say, God, help me. And then silence. And nothing. And I ask you to take a different approach and say, Lord, based on the authority of your word, you have said that your word is a lamp to light dark places. I would like to pay attention to it. That literally means I'm going to study it. I'm going to do more than read a chapter while I'm thinking about something else. Because we do that too, don't we? I want to pay attention to it. I want to study it. I want to dig in it. I want to understand it. Because I want to know Jesus. I want to know how, what he loves, what he hates. I want to know Jesus. And I believe that as the Spirit of God opens my eyes to the truths of God, that it will be a lamp shining in a dark place because we've all got them. The reason that you and I do not read our Bibles is the same reason we don't pray. We don't think we need it. We don't think we need it. Where you find people in desperate times and desperate places, you'll find them doing two things, and that is studying God's Word passionately and praying powerfully. It just goes with it. It is our lack of understanding of our need. We have need. It's, the issue is do we understand it? That keeps us from getting on our knees and praying and digging into God's Word. We don't see those things as the light to light the dark places. Like, we'll do something else. I could light all the dark places if I just had more money. If I had a different personality. If people would just understand me better, I wouldn't have all the dark places. No. Guess what? You can have more money than you can dream of and still have lots of dark places. You can be approved by a lot of people. You can be very famous and still have a lot of dark places. If you don't think so, look at Hollywood. Look at the sports world. It's full of people with dark places, with all the things that we think could light them. But we chase all the other stuff instead of moving into the simple light that lights the dark places for you and I. I often do a sermon in a sentence this morning. I want to do a sermon 
in a prayer that I copied from um, Richard Hudson Pope. He said, make the book. This is written, by the way, as a little child's song. Um, Richard Hudson Pope was a, was a um, he gave his life to kids' ministry. He was the guy that said, don't ever underrate the under eights. Um, in other words, the kids under eight, don't ever underrate them. Because he, he just had this passion for, for kids and for kids' ministry. But he wrote this little song that he taught to children. I don't even know what the melody is with it. But I actually have it copied in the front of my Bible. And I go to this a lot of times on a Sunday morning before I get up to preach. And it says, make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior. And make the book live to me for Jesus' sake. Amen. Could you pray that prayer this morning? You say, Lord, make the book live to me. Like, I want, I want a relationship with your word that is more than just something I kind of look at on a screen for a few minutes on a Sunday morning. I want a relationship with your word where I am actually being changed by the truths of it, that I see Jesus in it, that I learn to know him better, that I see him in all of it, and that it witnesses to him. I want to experience the power and the authority of Jesus Christ in my life. Would you be able to pray this morning, Lord, make the book live to me. Show me yourself within your word, which we're more comfortable with, but then show me myself. I'm not sure I want to see that. But can you honestly pray, Lord, show me myself? And then ultimately, that's going to bring us to the point where we desperately need a Savior, so show us our Savior and make the book live to me. Worship team, if you guys want to come on up, I want to close with a prayer. So if, if nothing else, this morning, I hope that you can understand or that you can somehow catch a vision for the place of God's word as a light to light the dark places and that the response would be, Lord, make the book live to me. Like, make it real to me. I don't want to read it like the Pharisees did where it's empty. I want to see Jesus like Peter told them because I believe that it is authoritative that men wrote it as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to study it, read it, dig into it because I need it. Would you pray with me? Lord, each of us has our own story. Each of us has our own dark places. And God, thank you for the reminder that your book, your word, living word through Christ is a lamp to light the dark places. So God, we do pray to make the book live to us. Show us yourself. Show us ourselves. Show us our Savior and make the book live to us. God, through all of the stories, the patriarchs, the creation, the patriarchs, the, the flood, the judges, the deliverance, kings, prophets, the gospels, the church, and ultimately one day we will see you fully glorified and be delivered. And all of it, turn our hearts to Jesus. Thank you and we love you in Jesus' name.
sings the last song.